Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 88, Technology Makes Our Delusion More Functional. We're joined again by CEO and founder of Twine.com and longtime Sogjin practitioner Nova Spivak. In this episode, we discuss the shortcomings of the Western tradition's understanding and pursuit of consciousness, especially with regards to finding an ultimate particle in physics. We also explore the strengths and limitations of technology to aid in the process of awakening. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Researchers such as Ray Kurzweil, who's a big thinker, um, a, a famous author named Werner Vinge, who's a science fiction author, have been talking about a concept called the singularity. Right. Basically, if you plot the increase in computing power, um, you can see that it's increasing exponentially while the cost is decreasing exponentially. So by the year 2029, according to their projections, the computing power necessary to simulate a human brain will cost about $1. Yep. That's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Even if they're a little bit aggressive and it's 2040, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. They're actually projecting that in 2040, artificial intelligence or you know, computer intelligence will be a billion times more powerful than all human intelligence combined. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, we're entering a world um, which is going to be quite different than the world we're in. And the notion of the singularity is when this happens, when we reach this point where essentially computing power becomes infinite mm -hmm. or almost infinite, or, you know, it's infinitely affordable at least, um, <laughs> we can't predict what's going to happen next. Now, right. these guys, um, because they don't believe in you know, anything beyond sort of the scientific material worldview. Right, right. Um, they can't, they, their, their vision of what happens after the singularity is that machines become intelligent and sentient and they're the next step in evolution and they replace humans. I think that's wrong. You know, what's, gonna, what's much more likely is a form of symbiosis where humans and machines merge such that the machines really amplify us we, and we amplify the machines. We bring the sentience, the machines bring this vast computational capability and essentially the web becomes an extension of our brain you know so that you know that doesn't help us become enlightened you know that makes our delusion more functional right <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have a much more sophisticated world scale delusion where we you know we can know all kinds of useful delusion deluded facts and things that's all great as buddhists it's it doesn't, it doesn't help us become more enlightened. Maybe it helps us understand, though, but once we're inside and can walk around inside this giant collective mind, it'll help us understand our own mind, right? Right. Because the macrocosm tends to reflect the microcosm. So what we, we can look at the macrocosm as a, a nice way of kind of seeing what's going on inside our own heads. And when you see on the web, you know, that there's this vast collective intelligence but there, and there's this collective self, but there's not really – that's not really a real self. It doesn't truly exist, you know, it's this fabrication. You can you can reduce it down to nothing. That shows that you know a lot of what we think is so permanent, and real in our own mental continuum, really isn't. Um, and then that introspects the question: Well, then, what is really there? And that's the thing that you know Western thinkers, including Western philosophers, and and most of people who write about consciousness from a Western perspective, are completely missing. They're completely missing um, this nature of mind. Some people, like John Searle, talk about 
qualia, they call it. Um, that is the taste of chocolate. You know, chocolate has this qualia of, of chocolateness mm-hmm. that you just can't describe and you'll never be able to simulate and a computer will never taste it. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous example called the Chinese room, which basically says there's a guy and he's locked in a room. He doesn't speak or read Chinese. And next to him is a huge book of instructions. And it basically says, if you get some symbols, just write down some other symbols. And so we, what we do is we pass him a question in Chinese under the door. And he sees the symbols. He looks it up in the book and just writes down the symbols that he's supposed to write. It's a very big book. So we pass him a question and he passes back the answer. And so we asked him a question in Chinese, and he answered it in Chinese. But he doesn't speak Chinese, he doesn't read Chinese, and he has no idea what we asked, and he doesn't know what his answer was. So that's what artificial intelligence is like. You know, computers follow instructions. So you can give them a question. They don't really understand the question. They're just following basic basic instructions, and they don't understand the instructions, and they don't understand the answer they give you either. You know, but they seem intelligent. So that's quite different from the human experience, which has this qualia, this understanding of knowing what the question really means, knowing what the answer means, and actually having sentience or awareness of that entire process. So, you know, the Chinese room example is used to refute this notion that computers are ever going to truly be able to be sentient or or the kind of intelligence that humans have. But a lot of uh, researchers in AI, that's artificial intelligence, you know, they, they talk their way around it and they basically say you know, they, they usually appeal to the magical complexity argument, which was used in the Terminator. One day Skynet, you know, this big military network got so complex that it woke up and became smart. You know, and this is the sort of nightmare scenario in, in science fiction that, you know, one day, you know, HAL 9000 just gets just that just that, you know, add one more transistor and suddenly it wakes up. And it just doesn't work that way. If you keep adding to something that isn't, you know, you keep adding non-intelligent, non-sentient parts to something that's not sentient and not intelligent, you never reach a point where it suddenly becomes sentient and intelligent. So what makes our brain different? Because, I mean, I know looking at it from the outside, it kind of seems like understanding it more. And I know Kurzweil, who you mentioned earlier, would disagree with you on this point. Um, So I'm wondering how do you, and this may not even be relevant, but I'm interested in it. So (laughs) I'm wondering how you Well, the human brain is special. From a tantric Buddhist perspective, the human body is actually, you know, has many different layers in it. And and there are subtle energy channels in the human body, um, which conduct subtle energy winds, which, you know, are really the connection between the body and the mind, Um, you know, in the Kala Chakra system and, and other, you know, highest yoga tantra systems, they go into this in great detail. There's a connection between the subtle energy body and the various levels of mind. You know, now the fundamental, ultimate nature of mind, you know, doesn't truly reside in the body. Although different traditions will say, you know, that while you're embodied, you know, you can locate it in the heart or other places. But right, right. in fact, it really doesn't have a location. If anything, it's the other way around. The body, it's like the matrix. The body exists in the mind rather than the mind being inside the body, right? So our body is appearing like a hologram in a kind of vast mental continuum. Um, it's very similar to the analogy of a dream, right? When you have a dream, you've got a body, you've got a mind, you've, you, know, you function, you can see other beings, you interact with them, there's a world, and all of that's happening inside of the space of your mind. So we know we can do that. We, in dreams, it can be incredibly vivid, and in fact, in the bardo, it's even more vivid. So lots of people have reported, you know, obviously, lucid dreams, and people have also reported bardo experiences and near-death experiences 
where they, they see the world, they interact with beings. It's just like this or even more real than the experience we have in our waking life. And we all have experienced dreams. So we know we can do that. So, you know, given that, how do we know that that's not happening right now in our waking life? How do we know that what we think is, you know, our waking existence uh, where our mind is inside of our skull, it's somehow attached to our brain? Um, how, what, what makes us so sure that that's how, that's how really things are organized? What if it's the other way around and our waking experience is really not that different from a dream, right? So our brain happens to be appearing in this illusion, but our brain is not the source of the mind. It's just part of this illusion that's appearing in this mental space. So is there a connection between awareness, the, the gray matter of the brain, the body? There does seem to be a connection from the perspective of cognition mm-hmm. um, and, for, and from the perspective of states of consciousness, which mm-hmm. are different than sentience. Right. There are many, many states of consciousness, but sentience doesn't come from any of them. So you know, any kind of intellectual thought, cognition, any of these mental experiences, we can say, yes, there's a connection between the subtle channels of the body and even the brain. But the sentience itself is, is, is actually the space that this is happening in. And that's quite different. The space is, you know, outside the body and the brain, if you will. The body and the brain are, are appearing in that space. They're the display of that space from an from enigma perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the short answer would be uh, you might view it uh, like electricity. We can build circuits that conduct electricity, but we, we never create electricity. And in fact, no scientist even knows what electricity is. All we know is, well, we can describe it in the form of electrons. And we know how to make circuits that channel it. But it fundamentally already exists. It's, it's in the universe. All we're doing is moving it around. Well, maybe it's possible. Maybe you could say consciousness is this fundamental force like electricity and the body, the energy system of the body can channel it like a circuit. Right. Maybe, that's, maybe that is one way to explain it. But I think that is not as a full explanation because although we might be able to channel attention – intellectual, cognitive, dualistic thought, um, or even forms of dualistic awareness and sensory perception, the sentience uh, is never, in my opinion, channeled. Right, right. Sentience, sentience is something which, uh, you know, from a Hindu Vedanta perspective, they would say it's kind of this cosmic witness that's watching all the time from outside. From a Buddhist perspective, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've see that and then you say, well, that's empty too. So it's, you know, the Buddhist answer is the next step beyond that, which of course you can't describe. Right. And yet it's paradoxically realizable. Yeah. I mean, it's realizable because you're it, right? It's not ever, it's not a dualistic realization and that's really important. It's not that there is somebody who realizes that and, you know, it's not self-aware in the sense of something being aware of something else or even something being aware of itself because there's not two in the first place, right? So all of these dualistic ways of describing self-awareness, you know, don't really apply. They're useful for, for communicating about it. But, you know, uh, in the end, it's really indescribable. I mean, that's just the – it's knowable in a non-conceptual and completely indescribable way. And all of us who are Buddhists already know it, have, have experienced it, and, and that's why we're Buddhists. And you know, even if we don't realize it, and even if we don't think we've realized the nature of mind yet, we must have seen it 
to some degree or wouldn't be Buddhists, right? So if you're a Buddhist, it's because you've got, you've tasted it, you know, it's there. And now all you're trying to do is deepen it, expand it, you know, and, and fully realize it, fully bring it to its full manifestation. But, you know, from a, a Western scientific perspective, you know, it's completely not even on the list. If you can't measure it with some kind of a measuring device, it does not exist. Sure, sure. Which is a, which is an extreme view. Right. Right. Yeah. So Western science is really locked into two alternatives, either exists or it does not exist. They haven't even gotten to the other mistaken views of it both exists and does not exist or it doesn't exist or not exist. You know, they're stuck on ex- the two most basic extremes. Buddhism gets rid of all four extreme views, right? So Buddhism is, is a couple uh, millennia ahead of Western science in terms of, you know, its view. In terms of the mind, yeah. yeah. In terms of its view of, of the nature of reality, um, the nature of the mind, which are really ultimately the same thing. You know, the notion of emptiness um, is something that Western science simply will not and cannot handle. You know, physics has come up with this notion of the vacuum, the quantum vacuum, which is constantly seething with um, virtual particles being created out of this vacuum all the time. And that's a, an interesting realization. Also in quantum mechanics, they, they found, you know, there's this weird interaction between um, observation and what takes place. You know, the, the wave function, which is this vast, infinite field of potential that's distributed across the entire universe collapses every time you observe something, you know, and so all the possible things that could happen uh, collapse and only one of those possibilities actually happens. And they've proved that this happens when you observe something. So they found there's this weird connection between, you know, what we observe and what happens. They also know that there is this vacuum and that the vacuum is constantly generating particles. And that's actually quite similar to the Dzogchen view, which is, you know, that, Ultimately, everything's kind of spontaneously appearing out of this infinite, you know, inconceivable uh, space, which, you know, we can't really name. Western science, though, is it's going to have a real hard time getting to that because basically Western science has to materialize and make things graspable in order to even discuss them. Right. So, you know, even when they talk about the vacuum, they're actually reifying it as something that truly exists. Right. It's not really the void. It's this new material they call vacuumness, which is made of vacuum particles, you know. They always have to make everything into some kind of material, truly existing substance. You know, even when they talk about the Big Bang, it's so ironic, you know. Well, if there's a Big Bang, there had to be something before the Big Bang, right? Well, (laughs) if there's a universe, there has to be something beyond the universe, right? If there's an edge, you know, as soon as you define anything, there's got to be something beyond it. But Western science, they don't kind of realize, eventually they should realize, well, there's always going to be something beyond. Maybe there really is something ultimately beyond everything that we you know, think of. So let's just stop trying to find this ultimate definition. But it's, currently we haven't realized that. And so we, we keep thinking, okay, now we're going to build a bigger super collider and we're going to find an even more fundamental particle. And pretty soon we're going to find the final ultimate particle. Right. right? <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And every time they get to another level, they're like, well, okay – for another couple billion dollars, we can build a more powerful uh, particle accelerator to find the smaller particles that are going to this time be the fundamental particle. Right? Doesn't it never? It's never going to get there. You're never going to end up at a smallest particle. You know, we we you know, quantum mechanics has shown that there are these quanta. You know, but we don't know if there's a limit yet. And you know, it's when you start looking at space, it seems to be infinitely divisible. So I I think that. Uh, it's a never-ending quest, and it's a losing battle, and hopefully Western science will realize that. I think the realization probably is going to come out of this weird connection between quantum mechanics and the mind and consciousness. 
that's that's where we're going to find some some weirdness that that may actually shatter the the worldview we're stuck in right now. Gotcha. So just to tie in all the interesting things we've covered, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how you see where all of this is heading in terms of the the web and technology, global mind, global brain, all of these things, all these technologies, artificial intelligence. How do you see these things influencing the future of, I don't want to say contemplative practice, just of realizing that fundamental nature? Because as you are saying before, uh, even though things could get more functional, doesn't mean we're necessarily waking up. So, yeah. Well, I mean, according to you know Buddhist prophecy, we're in the Kali Yuga, right? So this is not this is a declining period. The technological utopianists tend to think, oh, well, the world's getting better and better, and technology is going to make this brighter future. You know, there used to be these signs in the '60s that said "Better Living Through Chemistry," right? Uh, it's not actually how it turned out, right? Chemistry. I mean, you could say it made the world a better place. It's also pretty much polluted it to the point where we can barely survive here, right? And I think, you know, one view of the global mind and of the internet and, and all the technology we're creating is it's going to create some utopia that's finally going to emancipate the human spirit and enable us all to become enlightened and, and somehow technology is going to enable that. Uh, maybe, you know, it's also, you know, equally likely if our recent experience is any uh, guide, the technology actually just creates more bondage. Computers were supposed to free us, but I think most of us who use computers find that, you know, we spend more and more time just maintaining our computers, right? (laughs) So, you know, this ability to manage information digitally was supposed to free us from all that paper. Now there's more information than there ever was because it's so easy to make information digitally, right? So the web and computer technology and the global brain, you know, rather than necessarily freeing us may actually tie us in even more to samsara. So it's something important to think about. Uh, On the other hand, it's possible that, depending on how the global brain develops, that it could make us collectively more intelligent as organizations and maybe even as a species. A lot's going to have to happen for that to take place. If you look at most groups today, you see that the larger groups get, the dumber they get. In fact, there's a kind of inverse relationship where group IQ is inversely proportional to group size. So if you're talking about groups of millions of people, they are going to be you know, one millionth as smart as an individual. That seems to be uh, what happens. You, know, you get mobs. You get you know, mass hysteria. That happens. On the other hand, there, we know there's this tremendous potential in large groups of people. And we, if we could only find a way to better leverage the potential intelligence to flip that ratio so that instead of an inverse relationship, it was an exponential relationship. So right. that the, there was an N squared relationship, right? You know, two people should be you know, four times as smart as one person and so forth. So if that actually happened, well, that would be amazing. And the goal of the global mind is to facilitate that. But uh, we're a long way from, from doing that. Some artificial intelligence will help. We need to really amplify the ability of an individual to deal with information overload and to manage relationships with potentially millions of other people. We need to also create another level where the system starts to aggregate and reflect back the state of the system to itself. That's that kind of collective self, which creates a cybernetic feedback loop where the system can start to adapt to itself. We don't really have that yet. The media is the best uh, approximation of that today, but the media is quite sick um, and is giving us a very inaccurate reflection of ourselves, which is leading society, I think, to become even more pathological. 
hopefully on the web we can democratize this process of self-representation so that we can create some representations of the whole which are more accurate, which are more realistic and less um, controllable, for example, by big lobbies and governments that have a particular skewed view of, of who they want us to be. So if we could, I think, maybe do some collective uh, psychotherapy essentially by creating a more accurate sense of self on a collective level, that would help a lot in, in terms of making the world smarter. I mean, if people actually knew what the situation in the world was really like today, um, that might really change the way people think and the decisions they make in their daily lives. But because, at least here in America, you know, our view of the world is very, very America-centric and very, very skewed. I mean, there's never, to my knowledge, been an image of an injured American soldier in Iraq on mass television in America. We, we never see bodies. We don't see blood. We don't see poverty for the most part. You know, our view of the world is this somewhat Disney-esque view. And as long as that's controlled by the mainstream media, I think we're, we're going to be a pretty dumb society and we aren't going to wake up as a global mind and get very far. So I think one of the big contributions of the global mind on the web is, is potentially enabling that to fragment and providing lots of different perspectives on what the whole is thinking and doing and how we're doing, how we're feeling um, and what's going on. That's important. That might make us smarter. But, you know, from a contemplative perspective, uh, where I think the web can help a lot uh, certainly is in providing access, uh, distribution to teachings. Um, I think that, you know, right now it's very hard to meet and study with a qualified lama. Um, or Buddhist master. Through the web, it should be really easy to meet with your teacher, have a private session through the web, interactively as an individual or as a group. And, and there are various sanghas that are doing a lot of that already. Sure, um, yeah. I know that even Norbu you know, broadcasts teachings out to all his students on the web now. I think that's an, an, an interesting area. I also think that just the preservation and distribution of sacred texts, um, certainly a lot of them are being digitized and now we need to spread them around and, and put them in as many places as possible so they survive, you know, whatever, whatever might happen. We want these texts to survive and be available to people. And then I, I think that there's the potential to use technology to help speed up the process of realization and liberation. Enlightenment, I think, you know, is a different story. Enlightenment takes a lot of work. Liberation, though, which is the first step. You know, might be facilitated by technology. And, you know, it's interesting. I can't remember which sutra it was, but there was one sutra which actually said that, uh, that in a future age, people would attain liberation through sound. And, you know, there are many ways to interpret that, that it could be through recorded teachings or through audio, or it could be technologies that, you know, help people realize emptiness through sound. Like binaural it's very beats easy. or something. Yeah, well, binaural beats or, you know, other things. It's very easy to realize emptiness through the example of sound because sound is so transient and empty. Unlike most other phenomena, which seem very permanent and real, sound really does not appear that way. Just a quick question. When you say liberation versus enlightenment, are you talking about a, a glimpse experience as liberation versus like a full-on enlightenment? Right. Okay. Well, right. So, I mean, you know, there's lots of gradations between the initial moment of a glimpse of liberation right. and full-on, you know, <laughs> full enlightenment. Right. Lots and lots of levels there. Sure. It's relatively easy to have a glimpse, right? All you need is, you know, you need to want it and you need a little bit of guidance. And really anybody, you know, with even half a brain, with, a, with the will and a little bit of guidance, you know, can, can have that glimpse because it's inherent. Um, you know, it's nothing special and it's nothing, it's, it's, it's a great accomplishment on one level and it's nothing to be proud of or brag about on another level because it's, you know, it's our basic birthright. You know, it's what makes us sentient. So, you know, that's important and, and that could become more widespread. 
you know, it's still a pretty rarefied thing. Those of us who are Buddhists um, or people in other spiritual traditions um, have had a glimpse, you know, and that's something which I think it's the first crack in the ego. And it, it starts to enable a lot of growth and change and, and ultimately a lot more compassion to emerge. So I think, you know, simply allowing a lot more people, helping a lot more people to have that first glimpse and then ex- helping them to see the significance of that um, is great. And I think that all kinds of media can help with that. And the, the web certainly can. Yes. But I don't know if it has a, you know, any special advantage over, you know, radio or television, you know, CDs for, for that matter. There are lots of ways to convey that. Ultimately, you know, people have to do it themselves and, um, now, even if we have neural implants and neural interfaces, which, by the way, are you know you can get for two hundred ninety nine dollars, and they plug into your iPod um, or into various gaming consoles now. Um, neural brain machine interfaces, I don't think, are going to solve it. You know, there's not going to be an enlightenment pill. Uh, LSD certainly helps, but it doesn't. You know, if if you don't have a background, if you haven't studied, it's not going to do you any good. There are lots of hippies who did not attain enlightenment. So. You know, um, it just goes to show you, you can drop, you know, a lot of acid or, or you can modify your brain using, you know, magnetic um, devices. You know, there's a researcher named Persinger in Canada who's made a device that causes out-of-body experiences by right. uh, causing mini temporal lobe seizures using magnets. And you can cause all kinds of amazing experiences by manipulating the brain. But if a person doesn't have the causes and conditions, you know, that will just be nothing more than an interesting experience. It won't lead to any spiritual development. Gotcha. So, you know, that's why it's really important to have a teacher and it's really important to connect with the, the authentic dharma and to have those causes and conditions so that when you are exposed to whatever it is that triggers that first glimpse, it, it actually catches. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.